what's going well for Bob Iger now? I don't see why he wanted to come back. Uh, I don't see what his solutions are. And now he's extended himself for another two years, other than, you know, just liking being in the corner office of Burbank, being a big macher in Hollywood, which I'm sure he enjoys, but he's got a boatload of hurt and I don't see any solutions. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 14th. We got a big episode today with Bill Cohan and Dylan Byers joining me to talk about the deal between Disney and Charter to finally end the cable blackout that affected millions of customers, depriving Americans of their precious sporting events and presaging the demise of the cable TV bundle. Bill and Dylan explain what this latest agreement means for customers, for the future of cable, and for Bob Iger's rocky second act atop the Walt Disney Company. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be Daily. It's been a busy week at the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, but specifically the intersection of Wall Street and media and Hollywood. And for that very reason, this is a very special episode. I'm joined by both Bill Cohan and Dylan Byers to talk about the Disney Charter Battle Royale, the settlement that landed right before Monday Night Football on Monday, of course, and right before Aaron Rodgers <laughs> ruptured his Achilles and found out that he is out for the season. So Jets fans were happy for a few minutes that they got to watch this game if they were charter subscribers, and then we're pretty sad about it. Welcome to you both, guys. I want to start with you, Dylan. Can you just outline for people listening who haven't been following the particular ins and outs of this fight what the agreement is that Charter and Disney came to to solve the problem that 15 million cable TV viewers probably weren't able to watch some of their favorite ESPN and ESPN2 programming for, shoot, a little over a week, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's see, without going too deep into the weeds here, I would say the top line takeaways from from the deal, which w- was reached uh, just before Monday Night Football, which does show you, of course, the enduring power of the NFL uh, to solve all problems is effectively an allowance to charter that new subscribers to charter spectrum will get access to some of the streaming offerings that Disney has, not Hulu, but Disney plus ESPN plus. And when the day that that is coming ever closer comes when ESPN, the core flagship product moves over to streaming, they will have the opportunity to get that as well. And so you, I, I guess what you have in this deal is a sort of blurring of the lines a little bit about linear and streaming and what it takes to access that and whether or not it's something you have to add over the top or you get as part of your cable subscription bundle. And in the case of new Spectrum subscribers, they will get access to that. Now, <laughs> in order to sort of make this all happen, one thing that Disney did was it basically came to an agreement where Spectrum no longer has to carry all of these other 
channels that sort of existed in the bundle and that no one wanted to, you know, no one was really watching anyway. I'm talking here about like Disney Junior, Freeform, FXX. And so there has been a reaction to this agreement that after a week's worth of hype about how the end of television was coming if Disney and Charter couldn't reach a deal. There's been a reaction that's sort of like, well, actually, no, they were they reached a deal and everything's fine and, and long live linear. But the truth is that actually this is a slow burn and cable news and the cable bundle continues to die. It is just dying with a whimper rather than a bang. And all of these channels that sort of got to exist by virtue of being part of the cable bundle and and off of the back of ESPN and the other networks that people were actually watching, those things are going to start to die much the same way you saw Condé Nast, Axe, more and more titles, not named Vogue, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. And so cable is dying. It's just a slower death. And this was sort of a way to stop the bleeding for a few years longer while we make that transition to streaming. Bill, I don't know if you are a Charter Spectrum customer in the state of New York. Oh, I am. So ca- In two locations. Oh, wow. Okay, well. Could not watch the U.S. Open in New York City, even though it was being played in Queens because of this little dust up between Disney and Charter. That is bananas. Well, uh, as listeners of this podcast know, I switched over to YouTube TV, another bundle the other day because I wanted to watch the US Open. I wanted college football. But, you know, I'm not a Dodgers fan per se, but I can't watch the Dodgers now uh, because they they are only, and the Lakers, they're only available on Spectrum out here in LA. But I'll throw my politics knowledge into this conversation, uh, Bill. Governor Kathy Hochul said her office is working on getting refunds for a Mm. few million families in New York uh, who lost those Disney stations during this dispute. Bill, it really felt like during this fight, however temporary. By by the way, just interject there for a minute. I think Spectrum sent out an email to us earlier today saying that we would be refunded some amount of money for this interruption. Pardon the interruption. How much how much money do you think you're going to get? They did not say, but I did get an email saying there would be a refund. Well, because of the stakes, because of the high wattage events that so many million people were missing, it did feel like the squabble went on longer (laughs) than it actually did. But throughout all of it, it felt like Bob Iger, uh, the head of Disney, was sort of being a little cocky. He was approaching all this with some swagger, like, we don't necessarily need you guys. The charter guys came back with similar bravado. But you have a piece in Dry Powder this week about Iger specifically. I'm just going to read the lead quote, and this is you speaking, Bill. I'm beginning to feel sorry for Bob Iger. It's been a year since he orchestrated his own rather questionable return when he was 71 to the corner office at one of America's most storied companies, the Walt Disney Company. And since then, everything appears to be coming apart at the seams. I want to get into Iger and his, you know, return to power more in this conversation, but having watched him pretty closely, not just in recent weeks, but over the last year or so, what did his compromise here say about his tenure and his leadership at the moment to you? You know, it's it's funny cuz uh, you know, I started thinking about writing this uh before they reached the agreement and um uh, i don't think the the agreement really uh while while it resolved the matter uh, momentarily as as dylan was saying i think you know 
the analyst community on Wall Street uh, views it as more of a wind for charter than for Disney. Uh, and it's just one of the many uh, problems that Bob Iger and, and Dan, Disney is is facing. I mean, you know, frankly, uh, I don't know whether it's a win or a push or whatever, but it's basically maybe the only bit of good news, if you could even call it that, that Bob Iger has had uh, lately uh, in, in the nearly year that he decided to return to the corner office. And I, I'm sure that uh, as I, I was talking to one board member who told me that, you know, he never would have returned if he didn't feel like he could fix what was wrong at Disney, uh, nor would he have ever uh, extended his contract for another two years if he didn't feel like he could fix what was going wrong at Disney. But uh, from my vantage point, uh, I don't see anything that he's done that uh, indicates to me that he knows what to do to how to fix Disney's problems. I mean, uh, you know, hey, there's no there are no answers for the uh, continuing losses uh, of the streaming product, which is, you know, really quite ironic because it's, you know, it's a great product. I mean, people like the thing. They just don't want to pay any more for it than they already do. But of course, if they don't pay more for it than they already do, Disney's going to continue, and not only Disney, but the other streamers, except for Netflix, Netflix are going to continue to lose, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and, you know, and at the same time, uh, people are, are cutting the cord and not wanting to pay for uh, linear TV. So one one problem that he cannot really uh, doesn't seem to have an answer for is his losses in streaming. Mm-hmm. He's then, you know, put VC and, and the linear TV uh, world broadcast world, you know, up for sale, essentially telling everybody he wants to sell it, which is, of course, the worst thing you can do from an M&A point of view, unless you're kind of out of good solutions about who might buy it uh, that you already know about. If you're expecting people to come out of the woodwork uh, to buy it, what you're going to get now are are bottom fishers, Bob, if if that. So, you know, he's put ABC in limbo. As Dylan was talking about, you know, ESPN is in a whole world of hurt, Mm -hmm. as, you know, I've written about others have too. You know, they, they used to have 100 million subscribers now it's probably like 72 they expect it to go to 45 and how do you transition espn the linear product to espn the digital product charge what as much as 35 dollars a month 420 dollars a year and expect people enough people to sign up to replace the revenue and ebitda that you're going to lose on the linear side of espn with the revenue and ebitda you hope to make on the digital side of espn I don't see how that calculus is going to work. I really don't. And I, I do like Jimmy uh, Pataro. Uh, he seems like a good guy at, at ESPN. But, I mean, this is a serious business conundrum that I don't think he has an answer for. The problems at the film studios are now, you know, well-documented. The only thing going well, uh, he's got he's to buy Hulu for $10 billion at least, uh, which is like a use of cash that I'm sure he'd rather not do right now. Uh, the only thing that's going well are, are the theme parks, which are kind of hitting on all cylinders. And the question becomes, is that just a pent-up demand as a result of the pandemic? Uh, or is that sustainable? Or is that going to go away? Because it is just pent-up demand uh, after the pandemic. And on top of all of that, Peter, and I'll be quiet uh, for Dylan to come back, is he's got no answers on succession. None. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, he's pretending to bring Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs back in. They're not back in unless Disney buys Candle because 
you know, Candle is owned by Blackstone, and I really don't think Steve Schwartzman's going to be really psyched to see his two co-CEOs spending time at Disney helping Bob Iger, unless, of course, they've got an agreement for Disney to buy Candle, which is a whole nother uh, a, a, a bag of worms. So what's going well for Bob Iger now? I don't see why he wanted to come back. Uh, I don't see what his solutions are. And now he's extended himself for another two years other than, you know, just liking being in the corner office of Burbank, you know, and being a big macher in Hollywood, which I'm sure he enjoys, but he's got a boatload of hurt and I don't see any solutions. Dylan, I want to get, get your take on, on Iger and, and his tenure as well, but Real quick, one of the things that the aforementioned Jimmy Pitaro said after this deal came into place was, quote, we love the flexibility of this deal. We love the creativity, which sounds like, you know, content man putting on a, a happy face to, you know, throw a quote in the press release or whatever. What do you make of that comment? Like, is this a good thing for ESPN or is that just happy talk? Well, I don't. I Certainly there's it's impossible to look at this and not understand that between Jimmy and Dana Walden, there's a significant amount of, of spin going on here, but I don't think that I think two things can be true at the same time. One is that they didn't want to get into this carriage dispute and they didn't want to have their hand forced and all of a sudden start having to, you know, figure out this solution whereby this product that they are charging people money for or plan to charge people money for is all of a sudden now something that gets sort of bundled into the spectrum subscription. It's not ideal. At the same time, I I think that everything governing how Jimmy Pitaro is thinking about the future is, is not about the linear question so much as the the inevitable move of the flagship ESPN product to streaming. And I do think that there are probably ways in which they've sort of rationalized this move to sort of say, okay, well, are we doing things here today that could conceivably benefit us in the long run? For instance, does making ESPN Plus available to more linear subscribers does that broaden the market for consumers to make the jump to ESPN flagship when that day comes? Are we, are we in effect getting people, getting those spectrum subscribers ready? Are we expanding the total addressable market for potential uh, ESPN streaming subscribers? Maybe, maybe not. To Bill's point, Jimmy is an incredibly smart guy who has been like everyone in this business and especially at Disney right now has been dealt an extremely unfortunate hand. And he is probably within the strictures of working for Disney and, and trying to make the best of a bad situation. He's probably playing it as best he can. And I think the real challenge here, again, like Bill said, is going to be this pricing question. How do you, how do you, how do you price uh, ESPN streaming high enough to make anywhere close to the amount of money you were making through the carriage fees on linear without making the price so high that you basically disincentivize people from signing up for it. And, you know, I mean, I, I think already, you know, the prices that they're looking at that are probably in the $30 a month ballpark mm -hmm. are going to be really high for some people. And you're only going to get the real diehard sports fans. And that is not going to be enough to make up for it. So, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I think all of all of the above is true. I think certainly the problems that Disney are facing are true. I think that I, I, Iger, you know, this first 15 year run pre pandemic 15 year run where he is sort of the golden child and, and, and the model CEO. And, and almost like I, I described him recently as a sort of Disney CEO for the Marvel era, you know, in Tom Ford uh, outfit sort of saving the day and, and, and telling a story of growth through acquisition and expansion and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And now the story he is telling is really much more pedestrian and sort of, mundane and, and and has to do much more it seems with the dismantling of the business and that is not a pretty situation to be in why did he come back i don't know i i i think the more and more i study people in this industry the more i learn that no one really likes being out of a job <laughs> and people who are used to you know making phone calls that can move markets and and change the trajectory of of fortune 500 companies uh, get pretty bored pretty quickly when they're just sort of sitting around thinking about retirement. Mm -hmm. That or because he has no good options is is there a sale somewhere down the line? Is there an exit for Disney somewhere down the mm -hmm. line? And does he want to stay on in order to be to sort of you know write that final chapter for Disney? It's hard to avoid that as a possibility. It's also hard to see with all of the challenges that Disney is facing exactly who that buyer would be and obviously there's been a lot of discussion around apple i don't know but i, I can't imagine that he wants to stay on and deal with this sort of shit sandwich he's dealing with hmm. for several more years unless he has a sort of vision of where of where this all ends and where his story and his reputation ends up at the end of it i'll take a quick break guys and be back with more after this Welcome back to the powers that be, everybody. We're talking Bob Iger, Disney, and, and the deal they made with Charter Spectrum with Bill Cohan and Dylan Byers. One thing I heard both of you reference is, why did Iger come back? It reminds me of when Jordan, sort of Michael Jordan, came back after <laughs> a couple of years in retirement to play for the Washington Wizards in 2001. And like, you know, he, like you were saying before the break, Dylan, it's just like restless, wanted to keep playing. But he came back to a different world. I mean, even in the few years that Iger was gone, you know, streaming really changed the landscape. Jordan came back to a league where there were these ascendant new players like Kobe Bryant and Shaq and Tim Duncan and Allen Iverson, et cetera. Maybe I'm pushing that analogy too far. Bill, what, what's the take from Wall Street on Disney right now? I mean, they, they can't be totally thrilled with where they're at. Disney stock is down 30% since he came back. I mean, that, that about says it all right there, uh, 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 Peter. Uh, the S&P 500's up almost 10% this year, so that's a 40 percentage point miss. You know, if you were a hedge fund manager and you trailed performance by 40 percentage points, uh, you know, investors would be taking their money out. You'd be thinking about closing up shop. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I guess... Uh, you could point to Paramount Global being even worse, which isn't really saying much because that that's a, a pipsqueak of a company at this point, and Sherry Redstone has really screwed that all up. Even David Zaslov's WBD has done better in the last year uh, than Disney, which uh, 
you know, it's a little surprising. I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a mess, uh, Peter. I don't, I don't, I don't see, uh, except for ironically, the parks business, which of course is where Bob Chapek came from and, you know, was quickly defenestrated by Bob Iger because, you know, he wasn't coddling the creatives uh, properly among other things. Uh, you know, the, the, the ironies are just really rich here. I mean, it was, it was Iger who got rid of Mayer and Staggs, um, you know, therefore, you know, you know, Xing out some of potential successors. Um, this is kind of like an epidemic. Jamie Dimon is kind of, uh, he's almost 70, uh, uh, almost Iger's age. Uh, he's not going anywhere soon. He's sort of eliminated any uh, realistic successors, uh, you know, that are obvious uh, in, in his chain of command too. Uh, you could you could argue that Brian Moynihan has done the same at Bank of America. I mean, the only one on Wall Street who's really done succession right is James Gorman and Morgan Stanley. They haven't selected a successor yet, but we know it's going to be one of two people. And basically, I think we know it's uh, going to be Ted Pick, but we'll see. So what has Iger done? I mean, he's just, yes, he's back in the corner office. He can, you know, dine, uh, you know, at... Uh, Trotta's or whatever the hell it is in there in LA and Larry Trotta or <laughs> Sam Trotta or whatever Trotta Trotta you guys got going on out there <laughs> and be a big man uh, on campus. But he hasn't really done anything uh, to impress Wall Street. He, he gave that really foolish uh, interview at uh, in Sun Valley to, to CNBC, uh, really sticking his foot in his mouth over and over again. Mm -hmm. So not a great report card after pretty much at the end of year one. So, Dylan, uh, one, where does someone like Bob Iger eat in Los Angeles? Uh, I live in Venice. It's just a different world than than where he's probably eating and where you're having cocktails every night. And two, do you think he's tarnished his legacy? Uh, the answer to the first question is uh, Toscana in Brentwood, which is like the, <laughs> like the cafeteria for all. I mean, when you're not in Burbank, if you're on, if you're, if you're back home and you live on the West side over there, Toscana is probably the spot. Yeah. And then on the second question, look, I think, I think that it, it would be a, uh, a bad idea to bet against Bob Iger in the long run. I think he has shown a track record of of success over the long term. I think the one big takeaway that I keep hearing when I go back to to Disney current and former Disney sources is he seems to the 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 sort of legacy of Bob Iger is one that would be a testament to the the great man theory of history, right? Like Disney rises and falls based on how Bob Iger is doing and Bob Iger is Disney and no one else can do this, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I think the the reality is actually the, the disparate tenures of Bob Iger, point one and point two, actually speaks to the importance of a team. And I think that Bob Iger had a very good team around him pre-pandemic. And I think now what you see is that he is missing a lot of people. I think he's missing Zenya, his comms guru, uh, and and Bulldog. I think he's missing Alan Braverman, uh, one one of his closest uh, counsels. I think that you know, look, even bringing back Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs to you know to sort of help him figure out some of these big problems. And now, 
you know, Kevin Mayer's working with with Dana and with Jimmy and with all of these people to try and help. Like, I, it suggests actually that part of the problem here is that when he came back, he came back alone and the team he had with him w- was gone. And so I, I think it's probably much more significant that he came back to a different landscape. But I also just think that he's sort of, of lonely at the top right now uh, is the impression that I get. And I do think the biggest challenge, again, to go back to Bill's point that, you know, on top of all of these headwinds, he doesn't, there is no succession plan. There's no great idea for, for who besides Bob can do this. And, and, you know, again, to me that, that even speaks more to the idea that there might be some sort of an exit on the horizon, because the one thing that Bob has proved totally incapable of doing is, is finding someone who can run Disney in the 21st century. Thank you for validating my Michael Jordan analogy. You had, uh, back in the day, <laughs> you had Pippen and Kerr and Rodman. You come back, you only have Kwame Brown. You don't have that many people around you on the Wizards. Bill, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add? I, I just quickly, I you know, on the idea of the exit strategy, which of course would be the grand, you know, grand finale, the bow on the package, uh, you know, everybody's talking Apple. That's a $200 billion deal. That would be one of the largest deals in world history. Uh, Apple could do it, of course, because they're a $3 trillion market cap. But I think the largest deal they've ever done is Beats for $3 billion. Mm-hmm. I don't see it. I don't see mm-hmm. it. Why pay $200 billion and inherit all these problems? Just no way it's going to happen. Well, I so I, I agree with you entirely. And, and the point about how cautious Apple is as a... Uh, in in the M and A space is a very very good one. Mm-hmm. I do think that it becomes a little easier to envision if you are talking about a Disney that is no longer wedded to the linear business at all. That maybe even has gotten rid of ESPN as well, and that uh, you know I don't how the parks piece of it. I'm not totally sure, but I I do think that there there could be a deal on the horizon for a smaller core piece of disney um but again i I, on the whole i agree with you entirely bill that that apple is almost too smart to do this deal but it's just hard for me to see what else disney can do thank you guys so much for your insight on this uh bill enjoy having cable back in new york i'll talk to you guys soon thank you peter thanks peter thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.